Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. I'm your host, Sean Creighton. In my current role as NACU president, I have the honor of working with an amazing group of independent colleges and universities. I'm a huge admirer of their approach to teaching and learning. They provide an integrated, liberal, professional, and civic education. As a result, the NACU campuses graduate extraordinary professionals for a global workforce and society. Also, their campuses are beautiful. About our podcast, we will focus on topics related to higher education. We will bring in guests that wrestle with current and future challenges. They'll include college presidents, provosts, professors, researchers, authors, disruptors, reporters, strategists, and maybe even a futurist or two. They'll help us expand our window into the world of higher ed. Thank you for being here. And without further ado, let's get started. For our final episode of the academic year, I turn the mic over to our colleagues at Dutcher LLC to let them be our guest host of the NACU podcast. David Staley will interview Kevin Quigley on the always interesting subject of mergers and acquisitions. You might say we are closing out the season with a discussion about closure. Or is it closure? That is the question. In addition to being on the Dutcher team as a strategic consultant, today's host, David Staley, is the director of the Humanities Institute at The Ohio State University and author of Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education, and more recently, his book, Historical Imagination. Before I go, I'd like to wish all of our listeners a wonderful summer. You've made this an incredible year. May you squeeze in a well-deserved vacation. David, thanks for taking over the NAGU podcast. It's all yours. Thank you, Sean. My name is David Staley, Strategic Foresight Consultant with the firm Dutcher LLC, and I'm joined today by another Dutcher consultant, Kevin Quigley. Dr. Quigley served as Marlborough College's ninth president and has had a lifelong interest in how education helps citizens and their communities develop skills that expand opportunities to meet citizens' needs. In addition, he has served on the board of three other universities. This interest is reflected in his work as a foundation executive promoting open societies in the former Soviet bloc and in Thailand, where he was a Peace Corps volunteer, a Fulbright senior specialist and Peace Corps country director. He ran the policy and business divisions at the Asia Society and led the first tri-sectoral partnership involving global companies like Nike, The Gap, NGOs and universities in addressing global sweatshop issues. His consulting work with Dutcher involves advising boards and presidents on partnerships. And indeed, today we will be addressing partnerships, mergers, and alliances in higher education. Kevin Quigley, welcome to the NACU podcast. Thank you very much, David. Great to be here. Well, I'd like you to begin first maybe with defining some terms. What form do partnerships or mergers in higher education take, as opposed to what we might see in other industries? In higher ed, we, we often use the term uh, partnership as kind of a catch-all term for when universities work together in a variety of ways. And also, frankly, it's, it's a term that's a lot less emotionally charged 
<laughs> than mergers or acquisitions. Ah, sure. The forms uh, that they take in, in higher ed, and, and I'll just say briefly about each of those terms, mergers are generally understood when two institutions, higher ed or corporate or non-governmental, come together to form a new organization. People often use that term when two organizations come together, they're unequal, and one, in effect, acquires the other. And, and an acquisition is, in effect, a takeover by one institution with generally more resources of some sort than the other. Now, the form that in higher ed, there tend to be more acquisitions where one institution is, takes over another institution, takes over their program, their people may take over their place, their campus, take over their assets, uh, their identity, uh, their endowment. Uh, but increasingly in higher ed, we're seeing a form of, of what's called an asset transfer. And the asset transfer is the acquiring university or college takes over all the assets, but does not take over any of the liabilities, the debt or the encumbrances associated with owning a campus or issues of that sort. So there are a lot of different terms, and, and we're generally, for our conversation, use the term a partnership, but it most likely it's an acquisition that could take the form of an asset transfer. So given the challenges we see in the higher education sector today, do you think we're about to witness an increase in the frequency of these partnerships? I mean, as opposed to we're going to see a lot of colleges maybe close or shut down. Is it possible that we'll see an increase in partnerships? I think that's the likelihood, David, that we know a, a lot of higher ed institutions are experiencing, let's call it existential uh, crises. And uh, they fundamentally have three options. They can reimagine themselves in a way that by developing new uh, programs, new modalities of delivering their, their programs, uh, have great success in fundraising and, and put themselves on a more sustainable path. And that's extremely difficult given the trends in higher ed. Two, they can find a partner of some sort, uh, either to be acquired or to acquire in some uh, circumstances, but really with the goal of trying to get more students who bring in more student revenue. That's the core of these transactions. Or three, they could close. Sadly, I think in higher ed, we're going to see a lot more of the second and third, a lot more uh, closures and a lot more acquisitions or mergers uh, that we're calling partnerships. Well, I noted in uh, my introduction that you are the former president of Marlboro College. In 2020, you led a merger between Marlboro and Emerson College. And I'd like you to tell us what you learned from that experience. Yeah. For many institutions, even seriously considering the notion of, of partnership is, is a challenge. It's really difficult. Uh, if you're connected to an institution that you love, you care about, uh, you work with people who have uh, decades-long connections, uh, you like the impact that it has on your students, to think that your institution may close or may enter into a partnership where it loses its identity and autonomy is uh, initially really unfathomable for many of us in, in higher ed. But once you cross that Rubicon and decide that partnership is a strategy, an approach that you have to explore, there are a couple of things that I learned and I think others have, have learned. 
you really have to know yourself. You know, have to know what you're looking for and, and you have to know what you bring to the table. And, and you have to be kind of clear-eyed of what you bring to the table. There are some processes that institutions can go through that help them understand. And a lot of it, you have to adapt to your own institutional culture at Marlboro. We are very participatory, did a lot of focus groups with students and faculty and staff. We did one-on-one interviews uh, with all of our trustees, with the senior team. Uh, I had seven town meetings, some of them virtual in the midst of pandemic, some face-to-face, to really get a, a sense of what we were looking for and what we thought we brought to the table. And for many institutions, it comes down to issues around identity and legacy. And for Marlboro, it was the Marlboro name. And, and the third thing, identity, legacy, and support for our people. So it's a long winding road and it's uncertain. It generally doesn't happen uh, quickly. There are some exceptions, but for uh, most institutions, this is a multi-year process. And, and during those couple of years, while you're pursuing partnerships, time is not your ally in all likelihood Mm. Uh, your circumstances are going to deteriorate. And like Marlboro, uh, you may not find the perfect partner in the, the first approach. And uh, we had some very informal conversations with uh, one of our neighboring Vermont institutions that didn't pan out. Uh, and then we had a, a more formal conversation with another uh, university in New England that that also didn't work out. And ultimately, thrice was charmed. <laughs> uh, that that uh, we did work out a, a uh, an arrangement with Emerson College that secured all our essential objectives around identity, support for our distinctive pedagogic, student-centered approach, interdisciplinary, and three, support for our, our faculty and, and students. What were the challenges of the other two institutions? The challenges uh, of the first institution really related to uh, the campus. And I I think to be very candid, it was a perception of uh, status, uh, prestige. And this becomes very difficult uh, for many institutions, not only the when you think about partnership and the loss of autonomy and identity to find a partner that you perceive and is perceived as of comparable prestige or ideally. And I think in our the Marlboro case, we found a partner that is uh, more selective than than Marlboro. Walk us through the process of the the merger, the partnership with Emerson College. So for us, the process was very much like the process that Wheelock and BU went through. And and, uh, uh, I think there's a great book that David Chard, the president, and and his provost, Mary Churchill, put together called When Colleges Close, that describe a, a process of clarifying what's important to you and what you're looking for through a self assessment putting together a prospectus, and then having conversations. And in our case at Marlboro, we had conversations with probably 30 of the 75 institutions we sent this prospectus to, giving people access to a secure data room uh, with all your financial and enrollment data, other key uh, information about uh, your institution, what your governance structure is, your assets, your whether or not they're uh, financial assets or uh, intellectual property assets, technology, uh, key faculty, uh, key elements of your history, uh, information about your donors, 
And if the prospective partner signs a non-disclosure agreement, they get access to that. And uh, site visits often done with uh, small groups of trustees, as well as the kind of the senior team at Marlboro, accompanied by faculty and in a few cases by students, kind of mutual visits. You go visit them there. They come visit you at your institution, a lot of time on the phone with uh, various partners. And then uh, kind of formally, uh, once there was a board review of the four leading candidates, narrowing that to two in a subsequent board meeting, and then finally selecting a partner that we wanted to focus our time and energy in exploring. And, and in one case, we signed a term sheet and the other a letter of intent, which gave us two or three months to do some more due diligence to see whether or not this is really a, a partnership that you want to move from dating to uh, walking to the altar for the marriage or the merger. And uh, with uh, one partner, we signed a term sheet, laid out a very clear timetable to uh, have board review, do the various steps in due diligence, communicate with our creditors, communicate with the regular regulators who had to sign off on the uh, partnership. And they're the state attorney general's office, the state department of education. Our uh, deal also involved the sale of the campus. So that had to be reviewed by the state attorney general's office, had to be approved by our creditors also. So there are multiple steps in the process. And that very much means it's not something you can do overnight. Tell us about the, the role played by the accreditors in this process. Yeah. So for Marlboro, I think our, our creditors were incredibly helpful because one of the challenges that institutional leaders have is persuading their key stakeholders, their board of trustees, their faculty, their alumni, their students, that your circumstances are such that you have to really carefully pursue a partnership. And that may involve loss of your campus, loss of autonomy, uh, the end of their institution as they know it and love it. And that's really extraordinarily difficult. For Marlboro, uh, we had a couple of years of conversation where my colleagues and I were laying out what our financial circumstances were. Uh, what the enrollment impact was, our increasing uh, discounting of student tuition, how that was exacerbating our financial challenges and the trends were, were not in our favor. Uh, I think for us, fortunately, our uh, creditors put us on a notice of concern and that notice concern was really a wake-up call for our, our board of trustees that we ran the risk of of being put on probation, which at that time was public, there was ultimately the risk of loss of accreditation. And I think that was also helpful to persuade our, our faculty, particularly our emeriti faculty, uh, our, a lot of our alumni, this was serious and things could not continue on as they were. And, and besides that, I think our accreditors were exceptionally helpful in uh, as each step in the process from putting together the prospectus, looking for partners, to having a letter of intent or a term sheet. Uh, I was uh, doing a monthly report for New England Commission of Higher Ed uh, and having frequent phone calls with 
the president of the commission and they provided great uh, advice were a exceptionally good sounding board and in effect they kept my board focused on on addressing the issues on hand and trying to uh, think the unthinkable that they may have to close or or they may have to find a partner so we understand the the challenges facing marlboro what was in it for emerson college that's the other uh, really key question david is you don't find a partner unless your partner is looking for something that you have that you will bring to the relationship and marlboro was very fortunate that emerson had a small liberal arts institute called the Institute for Liberal Arts and Interdisciplinary Studies that had no direct admissions path was very small had a, a small faculty uh, Emerson has uh, roughly a student population of 6000 and they had less than 100 students enrolled in this institute with about 20 or so affiliated faculty and uh, by Having a partnership with Marlboro, Emerson was able to double the size of that faculty, were able to, and they were interested in the Marlboro identity and brand, because since Marlboro's founding, it was, it's been known as a radically traditional liberal arts college uh, that, that put an emphasis on student-directed learning and interdisciplinary approach to that. So I think Emerson was attracted to that pedagogy. And it enabled Emerson to boost its aspirations around strengthening liberal arts at Emerson. And as part of an overall strategy of Emerson, which has great strengths in the performing arts and theaters, so more on the professional end of the spectrum, but by adding a liberal arts component and now admitting students directly to that institute uh, this very much fit in with Emerson's aspiration to strengthen the liberal arts as part of their their offerings. And, and, and frankly, another thing they were interested in, and this is key for colleges and universities to look at your finances and people initially look at what's the size of your endowment and how much debt do you have. And I think the critical measure is net endowment. So take endowment minus your debt. And if that's negative, it's going to be very challenging to find any partner. In Marlboro's case, it was positive. So Emerson understood not only would we bring our students and faculty and the Marlboro name, but we also would be bringing some financial resources, which was important. You had talked about time being of the essence. How long did it take for this process? To work. What's the time frame here? So there was really two years of work uh, with the board to uh, get them to understand the trends in higher ed and how they were affecting our um, future options. And, and then once the board formally agreed to pursue partnerships in June of 2019, it was a, an intensive 14-month period mm. uh, from that point of time, putting together a prospectus, doing the self-assessment uh, that generated that prospectus, having the multiple conversation with the potential partners, having a, a, a failed engagement with, with one. Uh, and then from the time where we 
restarted conversations with uh, Emerson in October of 2019 uh, until we signed the final paperwork at the end of July in 2020. Perhaps you might share some advice with other leaders, other, other presidents who might be contemplating a merger. I think they will understand intuitively that these are emotionally charged processes that a lot of people will be watching, uh, not only all your stakeholders on campus and your alums, but your, your neighbors, your legislators and regulators uh, and accreditors uh, will all be watching you as well as your, your peers. And knowing that it's uh, a lengthy process that, and it's an uncertain process, there may be some false steps along the way. One of the things I think is really helpful or a number of things is the uh, leadership style. For me, it really centers on three things. Uh, One, project confidence in the process and outcome that is going to uh, meet, if not all, uh, many of your objectives. And that's challenging to do because you don't know what the outcome is, but as a leader, I think projecting that confidence that you have a a credible, uh, reliable, deliberative process that's going to produce an outcome that will achieve something important. May not be something that everybody wants, but you will have uh, an outcome. The other is is particularly uh, for your staff and faculty and students to be as empathetic as you possibly can because their jobs and futures are on the line. Uh, They're going to be anxious about that, particularly uh, in these times. Uh, There are so many things to be anxious about. And for us, we were doing this in uh, the midst of the pandemic. So trying to be empathetic. And I I think uh, for uh, leaders of of higher ed institution, being courageous and saying, you know, you understand where you are uh, and to be willing to step up and say, this is the right thing to do. It's uh, not what I came to do or wanted to do, but this is the best way to preserve the essence of our institution. Kevin Quigley, thank you for being our guest on the NACU podcast. Uh, It was really my pleasure to be with you, David. Thank you. Thanks for being here for Connect, Collaborate, Champion, a podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. This podcast is made possible thanks to our partner, public radio station 91.3 WYSO in Yale Springs, Ohio. Thank you, YSO. The New American Colleges and Universities connects our campuses to collaborate in the delivery of innovative ideas and to champion the belief that a comprehensive, liberal, professional, and civic education is essential to the future of our world. To learn more about our amazing campuses, visit nacu.edu, N-A-C-U dot E-D-U. See you soon.